a thousand generations of Jedi Knights and Guardians of Peace, Justice, Welcome back to People's History of the Old Republic, episode 7.0, Let It Happen. Last time, which was a long time ago, we said goodbye to the golden age of the Old Republic. Now we introduce Star Wars The Old Republic, discuss the Revan novel, and talk all about the Sith Emperor. I'm Luke, that's Kelsey. There's always a bit of truth in legends. And just a real quick note... Kelsey, this is episode 69. Nice. Yes. Regardless of what you might see on like SoundCloud, it says we have 70. No, it's 69. One of them is a duplicate. Welcome to the introduction to Series 7, which covers Star Wars The Old Republic, Bioware's massively multiplayer online role-playing game released in December 2011. Since that time, the game's storylines and scope have been expanded considerably with the release of five major story expansions, in addition to dozens of smaller content add-ons, one of which was re- released as recently as February 2020. Then there's the tie-in content, four novels, three comic arcs, five cinematic trailers, and no less than 17 short stories, some of which were released two years before the game debuted. Some of the class storylines supposedly have more lines of dialogue than either KOTOR game. We're beating a dead horse, but you get the idea. There's a lot of content, and we can't cover it like our previous entries because it would be a 70-episode series. Instead, we're going to treat it like a timeline focusing on the big events between 3681, when the true Sith Empire invades the Republic, through... 3630, the end of the current expansion content. We will discuss the big plot points from the game, important galactic events, and in one episode, each of the eight class storylines. While the main story of the game takes place between 3643 BBY and 3630 BBY, the events that preceded it began in 3681, and so we'll start our timeline there next episode. The 51-year period between 3681 to 3630 is even more chaotic than the golden age of the Old Republic that we just left. It includes seven large-scale conflicts or wars, the Great Galactic War, the Galactic War, the Dread Masters Crisis, the Eternal Empire Raids and Conquest, the Alliance Revolt against the Eternal Empire, the Order of Zildrog Conflict, and the Third Galactic War. Heck, there's even a Cold War in there for good measure, and the Third Galactic War might not be over because they could release new story content. This episode will serve to lay the groundwork for all that. We will cover the events of the Revan novel, properly introduce the Sith Emperor, and finally set the stage for talking about where each of the galactic powers stands in 3681. And though the story is a big messy soap opera most of the time, we're going to do our best to tell it well and make it entertaining because some of you absolutely love it. As for everyone else, even if it's not your favorite gamer story, you should ironically lean into it. Just let it happen. That's what Tame Impala said. Before we get to the uh, SWOTOR timeline, and I'm just going to call it SWOTOR because the name is too damn long, S-W-T-O-R. Before we get to the SOTOR timeline, we have to cover nearly 270 years from the end of KOTOR 2 to the beginning of the Great Galactic War. We'll start with the Revan novel because it allows us to catch up with some of our favorite characters and it's the next story chronologically. Unfortunately, this might not be the closure you're looking for. Yes, the novel gives us updates on a number of characters like Revan, Bastila, Mitra Surik, and T3M4, but most of those updates aren't terribly satisfying. Uh, we're not here to badmouth uh, Drew Carpishian. He was one of the two lead writers on KOTOR, after all. Uh, he was given an incredibly difficult task of coming up with meaningful conclusions or continuations for two player characters and a number of beloved companions, all within the new parameter of the MMO's story. It's just that the continuations leave a lot of open questions unanswered. But we digress. The Old Republic Revan, written by Drew Carpishian released in November 2011. The year is 3954, two years after the end of the original KOTOR. Revan and Bastila are married and living on Coruscant, but Revan's reintegration 
to society has been faring poorly. He is seen as a hero, but suffers from debilitating insomnia due to nightmares that contain flashes of his past. He was welcomed back into the Jedi Order, but the Council was angered by Revan and Bastila's decision to marry. Revan asked to teach his new theory of the Force that positive emotions could improve one's connection to the Force, but was rejected outright by the Council. The Jedi Council even went so far as to order Revan not to speak of his new Force theory, an act that enraged Bastila, who threatened to confront the Council directly. Shan couldn't believe how the Jedi treated Revan after he saved the galaxy, but Revan didn't want to cause a fight that would further endanger the Jedi Order. Revan is concerned about these nightmares he's having, which he begins to suspect are tied to some unknown threat in the darkest depths of space. His memories still haven't fully returned, he just sees flashes of things that happened in the past, but it's too jumbled to understand. Eventually, Revan's nightmares got so bad that he resorted to drastic measures. He met with Candorous Ordo. After confiding in Bastila, Revan meets with Candorous Ordo and asks his old friend to look into Mandalore the Ultimate's decision to invade the galaxy in 3976 BBY. After this, Revan went to the Jedi Temple looking for information about his former protege, Mitra Surik, but found that her record ended in 3959 with an official report about the Battle of Malachor V. The report stated that both Revan and Surik knew the extent of the mass shadow generator's capabilities, and that Revan was likely a darksider by then. While reading, Revan is confronted and taunted by Jedi Master Atris, who revealed she authored the report. The two argued briefly before Atris told Revan that Surik had been exiled from the Jedi and blinded to the Force by the Council. Revan pointed out that Atris's show of emotions was unbecoming of a Jedi Master, and she stormed off angrily. Later, Ordo had more info to report to Revan and informed him that the Mandalorians were searching for the Mask of Mandalore in an ice world called Rekiad. The name of this world caused some of Revan's memories to return, which confirmed that Revan had hidden the mask on Rekiad five years earlier. Revan knew he had to go to Rekiad and try to find the mask before the Mandalorians. Ordo suggested getting the band from KOTOR back together, but Revan nixed the idea for various reasons that amounted to the Last non-posthumous references in the timeline for these characters. So if you are hoping for the stunning return of Jolie Bindo, then prepare to be disappointed. Revan declined to invite Mission Vow and Zalbar because they had a successful small business going. Yeah, that's the real reason. Jolie and Johanni were rejected because they had both returned to normal life within the Jedi Order, and HK-47 was rejected for being too trigger-happy around the Mandalorians. Okay, the last one makes sense. Back at their apartment, Revan and Bastil each have news. Revan says he must go on a dangerous mission to determine the nature of the unknown threats that keep showing up in his nightmares, while Bastila says that she's pregnant. Naturally, Revan puts off his trip into the unknown based on half-remembered nightmares in order to support his wife during her pregnancy and giving birth. Nah, just kidding. Instead, Revan and Bastila had an argument because Shan was obviously and rightly mad at her husband for considering such a stupid course of action. But Revan couldn't shake the nightmares, and the idea that a great darkness was preparing to invade and overrun the Republic, killing Bastila and their child. Eventually, Bastila relented because of Revan's sincere dread at the coming darkness, and they spent one last night together. The next day, Shan accompanied Revan and the Astromech T3M4 to the spaceport where Ordo was loading the Ebon Hawk. Revan and Bastila shared a kiss before the ship departed, not knowing that this moment would be the last time they would see each other. Revan and Candorus make their way to Rekiad, a world entirely covered in ice where the Mandalorians were searching for the Mask of Mandalore. We learn that Candorus's estranged wife, Vila, leads Clan Ordo, who are racing other Mandalorian clans to find the mask. Revan travels under an assumed name, but the Mandos grow suspicious. Candorus and Vila reunite for one last night together, while Revan recovers some of his memories during a dream. Clan Ordo fights off attack from an, an attack from another clan while making their way to the to twin ice spears that Revan has seen in his dreams. Finally, Revan, Candorus, Vila, and a handful of others from Clan Ordo arrived and began to climb the first ice spear in two teams. 
Revan and Candrus summited the spear first and were able to reach the tomb of Dramoth II, which contained the Mask of Mandalore and a Datacron. Upon returning to the tomb, Revan experienced a rush of memories and Vila's team caught up. In the tomb of Dramoth II, Vila's team of loyal soldiers advanced against Revan and Candrus. Vila begged her husband to side with his people, but Candrus kept trying to defuse the situation. At this refusal, the, the Mandos opened fire, but Revan's lightsaber skills had atrophied little, and he killed two with reflected blaster bolts. Vila prepared to shoot Revan at near point-blank range, but Candrus saw and shot his wife in the chest before she could pull the trigger. Revan then killed the other two Mandalorians with a nifty, curving lightsaber th throw in the confusion. Candrus mourned Vila, and then the two old friends spent a mostly sleepless night in the cave leading to Dramoth's tomb. By the morning, Revan had pieced together his shattered memories and recounted the full story of what happened after Malachor V. We talked about Revan and Malak's journey into the unknown regions with the Republic fleet at length on episode 5.0, so we're going to give the too long, didn't read version here. In 3960, during the Battle of Malachor V, Revan challenged Mandalore the Ultimate to a single combat. However, after a brief but fierce battle, Revan was victorious. As the Mandalorian leader lay dying, he told Revan he had been deceived into beginning the war by agents of the Sith Emperor. Mandalore the Ultimate told Revan to travel to Rekiad and find the Tomb of Dramath to verify his claims. Revan then took the Mask of Mandalore as a trophy and to stop the Mandalorians from rallying around it again in the future. Following the victory, Revan and Malak absconded with the Republic fleet and went into the unknown regions looking for trouble. They traveled to Rekiad and left the Mask of Mandalore in Dramath's sarcophagus after learning of Nathema. With some of his memories restored, Revan died to go to Nathema to investigate the Sith Emperor further and tasked Candorus with reuniting his people to oppose the Sith threat. Candorus would say the group was waylaid by another clan and claimed the title of Mandalore, and attempt to regain some honor for the Mandalorians after it had been twisted by the Sith. While Revan and T3M4 flew toward Nathema in the Ebon Hawk, nefarious plans were already well underway on the true Sith homeworld, Dromund Kass. Darth Nyrus, a pureblood Sith and member of the Dark Council, was plotting a coup with other members of the Dark Council. Nyrus had learned about the Sith Emperor's terrible deeds on Nathema, which killed thousands of Sith Lords, left the world devoid of the Force, and made him immortal. While Sith are normally fine with wanton slaughter, they would not tolerate the mass murder of their own without good reason. Thus, the Sith Emperor's actions on Nathema were considered treasonous, though only three to four individuals knew the truth. Just before Revan's arrival on Nathema, Darth Nyrus had taken her apprentice, Lord Scourge, to Nathema to prove the Emperor's crimes. Scourge, another true uh, pureblood Sith, was angered and astonished at what he learned, but as the two Sith went to depart, they noticed the Ebon Hawk entering Nathema's atmosphere. In the Ebon Hawk, Revan had two very big problems pop up the second they arrived. The first was that he immediately felt a rush of memories that momentarily paralyzed him with blinding pain. The second is that Nathema is a force void, and so Revan had greater difficulty finding his bearings because such voids wreak havoc on force users. In this short amount of time, the Ebon Hawk was shot out of the sky by an ion blast from the ship of Darth Nyrus. Scourge investigated the crash and took an unconscious Revan captive, but left T3 as scrap. Surprisingly, Revan, uh, surprisingly, Nyrus recognized Revan as the same warrior who had been turned by the Sith Emperor five years before. Revan was incapacitated and eventually imprisoned in the dungeon at the stronghold of Darth Nyrus on Dromenkaas. He was given a drug that completely dulled his connection to the Force and was subsequently tortured endlessly in a single chair. After six months, Darth Nyrus lost interest in the Jedi after getting everything out of him she could, but Lord Scourge was intrigued by Revan and continued to interrogate the captive Jedi for three more years. Revan was released from the torch chair and given a small cell with a bed and sink after about six months, but six months, but he wasn't but he wasn't given clothes ever. 
The book makes a point of that, actually. Uh, eventually, Revan and Scourge developed an odd friendship of a sort, with Revan trading his fractured memories for information on Scourge and the Truceth Empire. In 3952, after two years of captivity, Revan finally learned Darth Nyrus' name, though not Scourge, and the fact that the Sith Emperor was preparing to invade the Republic, which was the darkness Revan had sensed in his nightmares. Revan also learned that Scourge and Nyrus were opposed to the Sith Emperor and plotting against him. Location Profile Dromund Cass The capital world of the true Sith Empire has long been shrouded in mystery despite it being located in the heart of old Sith space. Originally a Sith colony world, the location of Dromund Cass was lost hundreds of years before the Great Hyperspace War. Its location wasn't rediscovered until 4999 when Vitates Scientists and navigators located its coordinates to be used as a safe haven for the remnant of the Sith Empire. Right about now, you might be confused because both KOTOR 2 and the Revan novel explicitly state that Revan saw and found the true Sith in the unknown regions. Yet here we find that Droman Kass, the capital of the true Sith Empire, is not only within the bounds of old Sith space, but also just one sector away from Korriban. Just for comparison's sake, the distance between Korriban and Droman Kass is about the same as the distance between Bespin and Hoth, which the Millennium Falcon famously covered at sublight speeds in Empire Strikes Back. Not only that, Nathema and Rekid, each said to be in the Unknown Regions, actually lie due galactic east of Old Sith space, just outside its former boundaries in the Outer Rim. Does any of that matter to the story? Not in the slightest. Anyway, after... Vitatia's research team located the world, the remains of the true Sith Empire resettled Droman Kaas in 4980. Kaas was a world of overgrown swamps, jungles, and oceans, all of which contained vicious predators. The Sith began building the Imperial Citadel and Kaas City on the spot where they landed with the true Sith military, clearing jungles and building settlements under the command of Grand Moff Viken. The Sith Emperor, meanwhile, performed Sith alchemy and dark side rituals continually such that the skies of Dromenkos became permanently clouded and charged with electricity and lightning. For more than a thousand years, the true Sith Empire grew while secluded on Dromenkos, which wasn't on Republic star charts. Despite growing in secret, the true Sith built a thriving society with many cities and citizens across Dromund Kass, all working toward a common goal of revenge. Back in the novel, Revan eventually developed a slight immunity to the drug that dulled his connection to the Force, which allowed him to sense the Force in the dungeon. By 3951, Revan tricked Scourge into believing that he received a a force vision showing his escape, something that intrigued the Sith apprentice who had never received a force vision. That night, Revan fully opened himself to the force trying to contact Bastila, but instead saw a vision of his old friend Mitra Surik and was convinced she would rescue him. Back in the galaxy after the events of KOTOR 2, Surik briefly spent time on Dantooine Dantooine finishing up her Jedi retraining. Sometime in 3950, T3 revealed he had information on Revan's whereabouts that he could on- that could only be shared with Bastila. So Sirik and T3 flew to Coruscant in the Ebon Hawk and went to find Bastila. Once they met up, T3 played a recording of their crash on Nathema in 3954 and Revan's capture by the Sith pureblood Lord Scourge. This shocked Sirik and Shan as Sith as pureblood Sith were thought extinct by the Republic genocide against the Sith Empire in 4999. Sirik agreed to depart for Nathema immediately in an attempt to find Revan along with T3. Shan could not go because she and Revan's son, Vayner, uh, was just a small boy. Before Sirik left, uh, Bastily gave her Revan's old mask in hopes that it would bring his memories back. In short order, T3 and Mitra Surik set off for Nathema in search of Revan and his mysterious Sith-related captors. Surik found Nathema an, in, an inhospitable wasteland and Force Void that's, that and the first vo- good gracious and the Force Void that surrounded the world made her physically ill due to the disorientation caused by the Void. See, we all got through it together. 
She went so far as to say the feeling was worse than the feeling of walking the remains of Malachor V because Nathema was just nothingness in the Force, fully devoid of all life and death. Together, Surik and T3 found an old Sith government building and recovered some files on the old Sith Empire. T3 was easily able to slice through the ancient encryptions due to his advanced hacking programs and find the location of Dromenkos after being alerted to it by other files. The duo flew to Dromenkos in the Ebonhawk and touched down safely just outside Kos City. While posing as a bounty hunter, Sirik was able to buy information off of several low-level functionaries and arrange a meeting with the pureblood Sith from T3's hologram. Scourge arrived with four guards, though they mistakenly attacked Sirik, who dispatched all four with ease with a few quick lightsaber strikes. Scourge, who had been watching from a safe distance, was immediately intrigued as the woman who wished to meet him looked exactly like the Force vision Revan described. Surik and Scourge came to a quick alliance, so it took a few days for Scourge to arrange everything. The Sith knew they couldn't rescue Revan with just two Force users and an astromech because Darth Nyrus's compound was guarded by hundreds of soldiers, all of whom would know Scourge on sight. Instead, Scourge covered up his own actions in aiding, in aiding Nyrus's attempted coup and then went before the Sith Emperor himself with hard evidence of the conspiracy. The altered record showed that several members of the Dark Council were involved, and the Sith Emperor wasted little time in attacking his enemies. Imperial guards were dispatched to kill the offensive Dark Counselors, and a small battalion was dispatched to take out Nyrissa at her compound. Using this as a diversion, Sirk and Skirts infiltrated the dungeon, freed Revan, and gave him a robe to wear. In total, Revan spent more than three years completely naked, either tied to a chair or in a tiny cell. Revan was weakened and gaunt, but was able to walk slowly. Sirik returned Revan's trademark mask, which caused all of his memories to return simultaneously, knocking him unconscious. Unfortunately for all involved, Darth Nyrus was on her way to kill Revan as her last act. Though Sirik and Scourge defended Revan's body, Nyrus was a force of nature, overpowering her foes. When Scourge and Surik were both brought to their knees, Nyrus prepared to kill them with an intense burst of Force lightning, but Revan intervened. Despite his emaciated physical condition, Revan was truly reborn after donning his old mask, a conduit for the immense power of a Jedi, balanced perfectly between the light and the darkness. Nyrus aimed her lightning at the risen Revan, but he blocked it with his hand, reflecting it back against the Sith Lord. Nyrus was so shocked by this, she couldn't react, and her body was turned to ash by her own reflected force lightning. This display of power awed Scourge, who now believed the that the Jedi could defeat the Emperor. At last, Scourge, Sarek, and Revan fled the compound and hid in a cave near the Ebon Hawk. As far as we know, this is the final resting place of the ship that got us through two whole video games. An ignominious end, to be sure. While Scourge went to find went to find out info and retrieve supplies, T3 played a message Bastila had recorded before they left Coruscant for Nathema. Revan removed his mask and openly wept at the sight of his beloved wife and upon seeing his son, Vayner, for the first time. After Revan viewed the message, he spoke with Surik and thanked her for profusely for the rescue before praising her exploits in saving the galaxy and preventing the end of the Jedi. When Scourge returned later that night, he learned that the Sith Emperor had wiped out the Dark Council, killing eight of them himself, and instituted a curfew across the Empire. The trio reasoned that the Emperor would replace the Dark Council with puppets and begin his plans to invade the Republic immediately, so they agreed to attack the next morning. Later, when neither could sleep, Scourge spoke to Revan about Force Visions, as the Sith still had yet to experience one. Scourge spoke to Revan about the Force Vision. Uh, sorry. When they were finally able to sleep, Scourge experienced his first ever vision where he saw himself and his allies uh, defeating the Sith Emperor. The next morning, Revan, Surik, Scourge, and T3 made their way into Ka City and to the Imperial Citadel. 
Scourge was able to bluff or or persuade past all the checkpoints until they reached the Emperor's antechamber. There, the captain of the Sith Emperor's guard noticed Revan's distinctive mask, and the jig was up. A skirmish ensued, and when one of the guards triggered an alarm, Revan changed tactics. He used the force to throw open every door to the Emperor's throne room. Revan and T3 entered the throne room while Surik and Scourge battled more Imperial guards, though Revan cut most of them off by collapsing a stone archway with the force. A handful of guards survived the collapse, and T3 sliced all the throne room doors to seal them shut, preventing any further intrusions. While Scourge and Surik took care of the few remaining guards, Revan and the Emperor settled old scores. The Emperor tried to dominate Revan's mind with the Force, just like he had nine years earlier, but Revan was ready. Revan opened himself up to the light and dark side simultaneously, unleashing an incredibly powerful burst of Force energy that injured the Sith Emperor and sent him flying back. The Emperor then used barrages of Force lightning on Revan, but they dodged and deflected two of the bursts and sent the third back at the Emperor, hitting him in the chest. This is likely the first time the Sith Emperor had been injured by a foe in more than a thousand years. The Sith Emperor, now furious, unleashed a torrent of force lightning so powerful that Revan couldn't avoid it and he was badly burned, his smoking body sent sliding. Sith Emperor continued to electrify Revan until T3 and 4 saved his friend's life. Using his flamethrower, T3 scorched the side of the Emperor's face, drawing his ire. In a fit of rage, the Sith Emperor blasted T3 with such powerful lightning that the droid was destroyed on the spot. T3 died as he lived, saving Revan's ass. T3 was built by Janice Null on Terrace in 3956 and prior to his destruction on Dorman Koss in 3950 was instrumental in saving the galaxy three times in KOTOR, KOTOR 2, and here. Goodbye, little friend. You are truly too good for this world. The Sith Emperor retrieved Revan's lightsaber and prepared to kill the Jedi, but his killing blow was deflected by a lightsaber throw from Surik. With the Emperor momentarily disarmed, Surik and Scourge joined Revan and prepared to attack. However, in that instant, Scourge received another Force vision, showing him many possible futures, some of which Revan had Revan winning and others where the Emperor prevailed. Finally, Scourge saw the Emperor lying dead at the feet of a powerful Jedi who was neither Revan nor Surik. From this, Lord Scourge was convinced the only way to truly stop the Emperor was to wait for this unknown Jedi. That spelled trouble for Revan and Surik. Scourge immediately stabbed Surik in the back, killing her instantly. That's right, one of the most powerful Jedi to ever live was stabbed in the back on a backwater Sith colony world. Revan was so surprised that the Emperor was easily able to overpower him with Force Lightning, though the Jedi still clung to life. The Emperor asked Scourge to explain his action, and the purebud Sith lied, saying that the Jedi had been working with Nyrus and he was attempting to expose them. To test Scourge's loyalty, the Emperor ordered Scourge to finish off Revan. Uh, Scourge believed that Revan would die anyway and prepared to deliver the killing blow, but was stopped just short by the Sith Emperor, who was simply testing Scourge's loyalty. Instead, Revan was given medical attention and placed in a form of suspended animation at a facility in the Maelstrom Nebula. There, Revan was constantly questioned by the Sith Emperor and his agents as they tried to uncover any and all information about the Republic. However, Revan was able to use, his con- use this connection to subtly influence the Sith Emperor's actions and delay the true Sith invasion by nearly 300 years. Surik, meanwhile, refused to become one with the Force, instead choosing to exist in some sort of Force purgatory, watching over and giving strength to Revan. Without Surik's aid, Revan wouldn't have had the strength to delay the true Sith invasion or to de- uh, resist the Emperor's torture. Lord Scourge was rewarded for his seeming fealty to the true Sith by being given the gift of immortality from the Emperor through a mix of Sith alchemy and science. Scourge also became the first ever Emperor's Wrath, a shadowy executioner who solely reports to the Emperor. Despite his seeming betrayal, Scourge was good to his word and kept a lookout for the powerful Jedi from his vision who would kill the Sith Emperor. 
Around 50 years later, we see Bastila Shane as an elderly woman on Coruscant with her and Revan's son, Vayner. Bastila missed Revan dearly since his departure, but never doubted that he succeeded because the war he foretold never came to pass. In the novel's final moments, Bastila lays down to sleep and dreams of Revan, who is watching over her through the Force through the, uh, from the Maelstrom Nebula. Character Profile Baitate, a.k.a. the Sith Emperor, a.k.a. Tenbre, a.k.a. Valkorion. Baitate, as he was known for much of his life, is one of the names of the spirit and dark side entity who led the true Sith for 1,300 years. He answered to no fewer than four names and inhabited dozens of host bodies using a force ability known as transferred essence to move his spirit into a new host body at will. Sometimes this is done via ritual or Sith alchemy, but it's something he's done many times. While transferred essence may just sound like a cheap force gimmick to keep villains returning for future stories, because it totally is, the ability also has its limits as we will eventually see. Baitate's story began back in the misty old days before Naga Sadao waged his great hyperspace war during the reign of Marco Ragnos. It's so long ago that it occurred in episode 2.2, just our third episode ever. The boy who would become Baitate was born in 5113 BBY on a world then known as Medrios, but now called Nathema. His birth name was Tenebre, which is Latin for darkness or gloominess in the real world. Tenebre was a pure-blood member of the Sith species with distinctive red skin and facial tendrils. Tenebre was the illegitimate, unacknowledged son of the ruler of Medrias, the Sith Lord Dramath, the result of one of Dramath's frequent dalliances, in this case with a poor farm woman. The woman was terrified of Tenebre as a child because he never cried or showed other emotion and had jet-black eyes. Even animals stayed away from the child out of instinctual fear. Eventually, Tenebrae manifested extreme power in the Force, and his stepfather began to suspect that the boy wasn't his. During a confrontation about Tenebrae's parentage, the stepfather became abusive toward the mother, which caused Tenebrae to break his stepfather's neck with the Force. Tenebrae, just six years old, then locked his mother away and tortured her for a year before killing her and conquering nearby lands. Lord Dramoth ignored rumors about the boy because he had forgotten about his affair with the farm woman and it was on the far side of the world. After four years, however, Dramath went to investigate the boy's powers. Lord Dramath underestimated Tenebrae, a boy who was barely ten years old. When Dramath confronted his bastard son and told the boy of his true parentage, Tenebrae lashed out in anger, blinding Dramath to the forest before killing him. Tenebrae then went on a three-year campaign of conquest across Medrias that saw the boy either kill or subjugate every other Sith Lord on the planet. By the end of the conquest, the 13-year-old Tenebrae ruled the entirety of Medrias and had forced Lord Dramath's rightful heir, Dramath II, and his few remaining followers to flee the world. In 5100 BBY, after the conquest of his homeworld was complete, Tenebrae traveled to the Sith homeworld of Korriban. There, Tenebrae submitted to Mark Aragnos, the true Dark Lord of all the Sith, and was made a Sith Lord being, uh, get, and given dominion over Medrias, and was also given the title Lord Vitiate. You might recall from Tales of the Jedi Golden Age of the Sith that the Sith Empire's structure was vastly different than later iterations. In those days, the Sith had a Dark Lord of the Sith as his head, a Sith Council, and thousands of minor Sith Lords, many of whom had dominion over worlds or moons within Sith space. It was a lot like space feudalism with, Sith, with the Sith Lords ruling their five fiefs as they wished. After meeting with Ragnos, Tenebrae returned to Medrias, promptly renamed it Nathema, and settled in to study the dark side of the Force for a century. In 5000 BBY, when Ragnos died and Naga Sadao ultimately replaced him, Vichit stayed out of the power struggle and declined to get involved in the Great Hyperspace War. However, when Sadao was defeated and fled into exile, Vitiate saw his chance to seize power. In 4999, Supreme Chancellor Pultimo 
ordered a joint Republic-Jedi invasion of Sith, ba- Sith space to kill any surviving, surviving Sith and destroy their sacred sites and artifacts. As the invasion began, Vitiate broadcast messages across the Sith Empire, inciting panic about the invasion and imploring Sith Lords and their followers to come to the Thema. The Republican Jedi commit- committed genocide against the Sith, and they would pay for their sins dearly. It would just take a very long time for them to pay. From 4999 to 3681, the Republic Jedi counter-invasion of Korriban and other Sith worlds had the intended effect. It eliminated the Sith as a standing, cohesive threat by killing off its inhabitants and either destroying or stealing Sith cultural artifacts. There was no Sith Empire with a competing political structure, and standing military to pose a threat to Republic hegemony. Until the return of the true Sith, it was believed that no Sith even survived the genocide. Maite used the invasion to consolidate power and, in the process, create a militant secret splinter sect of the Sith Order. While Vite's long-term goals go far beyond revenge against the Republic and Jedi, it became the uniting cause for his people— a goal which they could collectively strive. But Vitae had work to do. After months of searching, scientists loyal to Vitae discovered the ancient hyperspace lane leading to Droman Kos, an old Sith colony world in Sith space. The world was barely known within the Sith Empire and would be safe from Jedi or Republic interference. With this knowledge secured, Vitae turned to his next goal, immortality. He returned to Nathema, where 8,000 Sith Lords, including some former members of the Sith Council, had gathered following his broadcasts. As the Sith Lords gathered, Vite dominated their minds simultaneously, binding their wills to his and forcing the Sith Lords to lend him their power. Then, with the aid of a superweapon supercomputer called Zildrog that specializes in energy transfers, Vite began the 10-day ritual that stripped the life and force energies from every living thing on Nathema, transferring their energy and power to him. Nathema was left a lifeless husk in the void in the force, meaning it couldn't be sensed by force users and lost its color and sound. But Nathema was but Vite was made nearly immortal and given every even greater force power. After the ritual, Vaite blamed the destruction of Nathema on the Jedi, gathered what remained of the former Sith Empire, and began the 20-year-long Sith Exodus. All records of Nathema were quietly deleted. Thus, in 4999, Vichy led a Sith diaspora on a 20-year journey to find the lost colony world of Dromenkos, despite already having the hyperspace coordinates and the fact that Korriban and Dromenkos are in the same sector. Vitiate did this to increase his people's reliance on him, and so they would, they would come to be dependent on his power and vision. It worked like a charm. The denizens of the wandering Sith Empire became totally reliant on Vitiate even as he withdrew from them and shed his old persona of Lord Vitiate, taking up the title of Sith Emperor. In 4980, the Sith diaspora landed on Dromenkos and Vishit gave a speech declaring a new post-Great Hyperspace War Sith Empire, true Sith Empire. Vishit further promised that the Sith would one day have vengeance on the Republic and Jedi who committed genocide against them. After 20 years of wandering, the citizens viewed their emperor as a sort of god-king and immediately began building Kos City, the capital of their new empire, according to Vitiate's vision. Initially, Vitiate would address his subjects on Drome and Kos regularly, but as time went on, he became more reclusive and left the imperial apparatus to be overseen by others. Though his will and plans guided the true Sith Empire through his dark council of 12 Sith Lords, we know little about his actions for more than a thousand years. From 4980 to 3978, the Sith Emperor's actions are almost totally unknown save for a couple of minor appearances. Finally, in 3978, the Sith Emperor was ready to begin actively meddling in galactic affairs, and he sent an agent to manipulate Mandalore the Ultimate. 
Using the dark side, this agent successfully deceived the, the Mandalorians into declaring war by claiming to have seen a Force vision showing them victorious over the Republic. For 16 years, the Mandalorians tested the galaxy, nearly conquering the Galactic Republic in 3962 before being repelled. In 3961, the Sith Emperor was alerted to Revan's presence on Korriban and Malachor V when he was searching for knowledge. Later, in 3960, when Mandalore the Ultimate was dying, he revealed the presence of the true Sith to Revan. The next sequence plays out just like it did in the Revan novel we discussed earlier, with Revan and Malak following the Sith trail to Rekiad, Nathema, and eventually Drum and Kaas. In 3959, they attacked the Sith Emperor, but underestimated his power. Baitea overwhelmed their minds and broke their wills, turning both Revan and Malak fully to the dark side, giving each the Darth title and sending them to find the Starforge. Sith Emperor planned to use the ships created by the Starforge to reinforce his navy, but as we all know, Revan had other plans. After Revan's capture in 3950, Baitea's invasion was delayed by Revan and Force Ghost Mitra Surik, as discussed above. Delaying the invasion saved billions of lives with the Republic in dire shape following KOTOR 2. Though in 3781, Vitae ordered the true Sith to begin preparations for the invasion, which would last exactly 100 years. From 3950 to 3681, we again know very little about the Sith Emperor's actions with any specificity. We know that Revan's failed assassination attempt left the Sith Emperor more paranoid and he delved deeper into the dark side of the Force in order to fully escape death. He discovered the dark side ability known as Essence Transfer to preserve himself into new hosts upon death. He also used Essence Transfer to preserve his consciousness during life, placing it in a host body called the Voice of the Emperor, which kept the same physical characteristics but took on Vitae's distinct voice. During this period, the Sith Emperor hid the original pure-blood Sith body, which would have to be destroyed if he was ever going to actually die. You know, like a Horcrux. Using Essence Transfer, the Sith Emperor took on and discarded many host bodies over the centuries, but the Sith Emperor also grew restless, having something of a mid-immortality crisis. He grew tired of the galaxy and the restrictions placed on him by both Sith teachings and the Empire he had created, so he started cheating on the true Sith with a younger, prettier Empire. Okay, we'll stop forcing this metaphor, but you get the idea. Vitae heard a tale of a nearly unstoppable fleet buried on a backwater planet in wild space, called Zakul and resolved to investigate. Taking on the form of a human male and the name Valkorion, he went to Zakul and fooled the locals into thinking he was one of their revered old gods. He united the disparate tribes of Zakul and set the entire world to building a grand empire and raising the eternal fleet. The true Sith suspected nothing because Vitae split his consciousness into multiple hosts, so they just remember that Vitae has Zakul as a fallback. For now, however, he is leading the true Sith Empire, and they are just about ready to take revenge. All right, we'll wrap up this introduction by giving you a rundown of where the galactic powers stood when we left off in 3950 and where they are when we resume the narrative in 3681 BBY. When we last surveyed things at the end of KOTOR 2, the situation was tenuous at best. The Republic had been stabilized through Herculean effort, but it had come within one month of collapsing under its own weight. But never fear, the Republic would rebuild from this low point and again become the bloated, hypocritical bureaucracy we all know and love. The Jedi Order consisted of about nine individuals, the six lost Jedi trained by Mitra Surik, along with Bastila Shan, Disra Lurjata, and probably Vima Sunrider. So nine total Jedi left to rebuild the Order, six of whom had received, at most, three weeks of training from Surik. Much like the Republic, the Jedi had nowhere to go but up. The Mandalorians, led by Candorus Ordo, a.k.a. Mandalore the Preserver, were a scattered remnant, a ghost of their former glory, cloistered away on Duxun. They were returned, though in a highly diminished capacity. Finally, the Sith Triumvirate, and thus the Sith Order as we have known it, was effectively obliterated by Surik. 
The Sith Triumvirate followed in the Sith tradition that we are familiar with now from our narrative up to this point. The tradition was set out by Naga Sadao, picked up by Frieden Nad, revived by Exar Kun, nearly perfected by Darth Revan, and usurped by Darth Malak. As the only remnant of Revan and Malak's Sith Empire, the destruction of the Sith Triumvirate meant the extinction of the Sith, though they will be eventually though they will eventually be revived around 3500 BBY and consolidated by Darth Bane under the rule of two much later. However, at least for the time being, the Sith as we have known them are dead. Little did anyone know that a splinter sect of the true of the Sith, the true Sith was lying in wait. Now, they just call themselves Sith, but we call them true Sith to differentiate, and because Kray used it as a general descriptor in KOTOR 2, uh, as you can see from the state of the galaxy in 3950, it's a good thing that the powers that be were able to rebuild in the 269 years that elapsed because the true Sith would have run roughshod over everyone and everything if they had invaded any earlier. By 3681, on the eve of the Great Galactic War, the Galactic Republic was thriving, rejecting its power and political legitimacy through expansion and the use of fully staffed outposts, even in the Outer Rim. Whereas the Republic had previously retreated back into the Inner Rim and barely held on to Onderon, the bounds of the Galactic Republic now pushed into the Outer Rim. Their presence extended so deep into the Outer Rim, they maintained space stations above worlds like Korriban. In addition to repairing its political standing, the Republic military has also been restored to its former glory. No longer the patchwork fleet of Admiral Karthanasi, the Republic military is fully staffed with a massive fleet and large array of troops. In terms of personnel and aesthetics, just imagine the Grand Army of the Republic that fought during the Clone Wars, and you'll have a good idea for the Republic military in 3681. Just swap out citizen soldiers for clones and you're pretty much there. The Jedi Order, meanwhile, has been fully rebuilt with thousands of knights serving as the protectors of peace and justice all across the galaxy. There are so many Jedi now that they will lose thousands in the Great Galactic War and still have more than a thousand left. This iteration of the Jedi Order is much more comfortable with war than even the Jedi of the prequels were, though they seem to have retained that old prohibition forbidding marriage and sex. The Jedi never seem to learn, do they? Many knights wear armor with their robes, as was the style at the time. The Jedi are led by the Keldor Grandmaster Zim. The Mandalorians are still scattered and leaderless, with most working as bounty hunters. The true Sith approached many Mandalorians seeking their aid in the coming war, but were rebuffed. However, before the Great Galactic War is out, the true Sith will turn to a different tactic to reunite the Mandalorians, at least temporarily. Finally, we come to the true Sith, but since their structure contrasts so sharply with all the other iterations of the Sith Empire we know, we will spend a little more time on them than the others. In 3681 BBY, the true Sith Empire had been building on Droman Kos and a few surrounding minor worlds for 1,299 years. Under the rule of Vitiate, the true Sith have gone from a tiny exile fleet fleeing the destruction of their homeworld into an empire with millions of citizens, a, a bureaucracy, and a functioning economy. As we will see, they had a bureaucracy so Byzantine it would have made the Roman Emperor Diocletian proud. The true Sith imperial power structure is an authoritarian theocratic autocracy or an oligarchic magocracy, depending on how you look at it. The delineation line between the haves and the have-nots in the true Sith empire is, perhaps unsurprisingly, force sensitivity. Force-sensitive individuals are inducted as Sith, and they alone can ascend to the highest rungs of power. The non-force-sensitive citizens may attain high military or bureaucratic ranks, but they will never reach the upper echelons. Central authority is vested in the Sith Emperor, and of course, but as he grows increasingly isolated, the 12-member Dark Council begins to rule in his stead. Each member of the Dark Council had the, held the title 
Darth and was a powerful force user who oversaw a certain aspect of Imperial operation. The Dark Council was vested with all executive, legislative, and judicial power and could only be overruled by the Sith Emperor himself. Traditionally, if a member died or was removed, their apprentice would take the vacated place on the council. In addition to the Dark Council, the Emperor also appointed certain individuals to positions reporting directly to him, such as the Emperor's Wrath. Below the Dark Council were other Force-sensitive members of the Sith Empire who had been made Sith Lords, most of whom took on a Darth moniker. Each Sith Lord would take on an apprentice, and the pair would lead units into battle as commanders. On the eve of the Great Galactic War, the true Sith Empire has thousands of Force users, including Sith Lords, Sith Warriors, Sith Inquisitors, Sith Assassins, and everything in between. Forget that rule of two shit, there are hundreds of Sith Lords with a Darth title, all of whom have their own ulterior motives, desires, and designs for the future of their empire. The have-nots in the equation are the non-Force-sensitive citizens of the Empire, all of whom largely exist to serve the Force-sensitive Sith. Technically, the Force-sensitives are the only individuals in the Empire who have the title of Sith, though we will use it much more broadly as we have in the past. Citizens are placed in one of three ministries once they come of age. War, Intelligence, and Logistics. Though each has different functions, they all feed the military and imperial industrial complex and report to the Dark Council. The Ministry of War has jurisdiction over the true Sith naval fleet and army group troops. Though the ships are a little more angular than the armor is black now, the true Sith military largely resembles Palpatine's empire in aesthetic design. The Ministry of Intelligence provides spy services, covert infiltration, and true Sith propaganda to the empire. Being highly autocratic, the Intelligence Division also maintains a secret police who infiltrate and uncover threats to the Empire on Dromancaz and other Sith-held worlds. Finally, the Ministry of Logistics does logistical things for the Empire, as one might expect. This group oversees supply lines, personal deployment, and runs the Imperial economy. Though all citizens exist to serve in or otherwise bolster the true Sith military in some way, they still have it better than the slaves. In this way, true Sith society is similar to other Sith empires. It is humanocentric, considering almost all non-humans to be inferior except the Sith pureblood species, who are grandfathered in from the original Sith empire. And much like every Sith empire, the true Sith heavily rely on slave labor, usually consisting of non-humans captured in battle or born into bondage. So that's where the true Sith empire stood on the eve of the invasion of its invasion of the Republic. Though Revan was still alive in stasis and had successfully delayed the Emperor's invasion for more than two centuries, it was never going to be a permanent solution. In early 3681, a hundred years after the true Sith began to prepare, and 1318 years after the Republic and Jedi committed genocide against their forebears, the Empire massed two separate attack forces just outside Republic space the next day. And that's where we will leave our introduction, with the entire galaxy standing on the edge of a knife. Thank you for listening to this episode of A People's History of the Old Republic. Next time, we will begin our timeline narrative of SWOTOR by discussing the 28-year-long Great Galactic War. You can follow us on Twitter at Photorpod or email us at photorpodcast at gmail.com. Send us questions and comments and we will answer them on the show. I'm at AthertonKD on Twitter. And I'm at LucasAmazing on Twitter. Thank you again and may the Force be with you. <laughs>